Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Let's get a, a you know, Max, uh, as our super producer, you run the sound cues. Can we get some, like, kind of military music? Maybe, like, a little fife and a drum with your woo? Does it have to be good military music? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. (laughs) What even is good military? I mean, you know, it's just meant to evoke a sense of patriotism and fervor. I mean, no, I don't know what good is, but I can definitely find a lot of bad. Yeah, Yeah. I I was in a surprisingly thorough conversation with some good friends over the weekend about the national anthem of the United States, which is the Star Spangled Banner and is objectively just kind of an awkward song. Most people, you know, every few years, you'll see a uh, a groundswell of support, sometimes jokingly, sometimes serious, to change the national anthem to something like America the Beautiful or, you know, a song that feels a little less unwieldy in the mouth and the lungs, <laughs> yes. but it's got, it's got to, it's got to have a good mouth feel. I'm Noel, by the way. Yes. Uh, they call me Ben in many parts of the country and abroad. And right now, as we are recording, we are based in the United States here at ridiculous history, despite having 50 very widely varied States that comprise the union, as well as territories and overseas possessions. The U.S. is one country. A while back, this was not the case. There was something mm-hmm. called the Civil War in the United States, and had the it. yeah had the Confederacy had its way, then they would be there would be two separate countries where the U.S. is one today. And it's funny because spending so much time in the South as the three of us have, we have all run into people who have their own kind of spin on the narrative of the Civil War. One of the most stereotypical you'll hear, and it is a true stereotype, is you'll hear people say something egregiously incorrect. They'll say the Civil War was not really about the enslavement of human beings. It was about individual and state rights. And that's 
pretty much not the case. Uh, so, so that's sort of what uh, we wanted to explore today, you know? A hundred percent. I mean, I completely agree with you. That is definitely not the case. And just sort of like a whitewashed spin often employed by people who reside in the South and maybe still maintain some sort of sense of patriotism around, you know, their region. Nothing wrong with having a, 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 you know, pride in your history and where you grow up, but it's difficult and made complicated if you uh, come from a tradition that is kind of steeped in racism and, and, and an apologism for something as awful as slavery. So it makes sense that you'd want to flip the narrative and say, no, actually it was about this other thing, but it definitely was about more than just slavery. It was about identity. It was about some of those states' rights things, but the biggie that actually caused it to go into a full-on hot, you know, war was slavery. That was the biggest issue. Right. And you can see people arguing that the causes for the conflict were much more nuanced, but ultimately it came down to that. So when you hear somebody say, well, there were a lot of economic factors at play, you have to realize that one of the big economic factors at play was indeed the practice of mass enslavement that was a part of the South's economy. And we wanted to look at the idea of individual rights, uh, which are often touted as one of the causal factors leading to the Confederacy's attempt at secession from the Union. But as we're going to find in today's episode— the Confederacy, when it was around, wasn't quite the champion of individual rights that later revisionists would claim it to be. Between 1862 and 1865, officers of the Confederate District of North Carolina confiscated and sold millions of dollars, 1800s millions of dollars worth of property from North Carolinans who had been accused of being whoosh, whoosh, Alien enemies. Right. That's a fun term. And mm -hmm. we're going to dig a little deeper into today. All of the cash that was uh, procured from the sale of those properties was then sent to Richmond. And a lot of it was just buried. It was essentially theft. There was never a paper trail as to what happened to that money. Many of the uh, court officers of that area, like David Shank, for example, of Lincoln County, uh, all of a sudden overnight became quite wealthy <laughs> as, as a result of imposing these laws. Uh, one particularly known as the Act of Sequestration, which is a great word. It makes me think of castration for some reason. I mean, it's essentially taking something from somebody and keeping it for yourself you know, under the pretense of some sort of like legal framework, like, well, you know, you're acting outside of the the bounds of the law, or it's sort of like maybe the equivalent might be, let's say there's like a drug lord or drug cartel money that's wrapped up in property, and then the um, DEA seizes it, and they can justify doing that because they say, well, you broke the law, so therefore we now own what is yours, and we will you know, funnel that money into whatever else, or at the very least confiscate it. But this yeah. was like that without nearly as uh, ironclad a, uh, a defense and, and not any paper trail. Yeah, and the modern version to uh, various repo laws also have a lot of problems here in the States in 2022. You know, often if you see a police car that looks really cool and tricked out and, and you're wondering how that, uh, how that department ended up 
with this absolute beast of a sports car as a cop car, it might have gotten repoed from a drug dealer. Also, there's a lot of uh, litigation ongoing now regarding the idea that in certain areas of the country, law enforcement can just take cash if they think it's suspicious. And it can be very difficult for people, even innocent people, to get that cash back. This law, this Confederate law, the act of sequestration was actually kind of a clapback, oddly enough. It was a reaction to the law passed by the Union, the first Confiscation Act of August 6, 1861. This laid out a legal mechanism for Northern forces to take the property of Southerners if those Southerners were suspected of aiding the rebellion or if their property was being used to aid the rebellion. Now, Think about the word property at this time, fellow ridiculous historians. This is not explicitly mentioned in the first confiscation act itself, but it was later, you know, it was widely understood and then officially confirmed by the executive branch at the time that property included enslaved people. And this really PO'd the Confederate forces because they said, hey, we're protecting individual rights, the rights of individuals, including property rights. And without a shred of irony, without a shred of acknowledgement of the Orwellian doublethink here, the Southerners who said they had these individual rights also said that one of their individual rights was the ability to own other individual human beings. And they did not think that was weird. No, they sure didn't. They thought it was just great. <laughs> they really liked it. They they uh they kind of bet the farm on that one, Ben. Yeah, uh, and thankfully they lost uh, in a stunning turn of events. But that's not exactly where we're going today. Let's just talk about this clapback idea. That's the thing, right? When you have like a war between the states where you're technically existing under one government, but then one side decides, you know what, that government doesn't represent my interests. We're going to form our own you've got a lot of things that are pretty much out of whack and people writing rules as they go. And then, you know, one side writes a rule and says, well, this is what we're abiding by and how we're going to proceed. And then the other side gets to basically do the same. So you get a lot of one-upsmanship and back and forthery and um, uh, chaos essentially ensues because there's really no rhyme or reason. And it's all about who can, yeah, I, I legally based on this, you know, idea that we just came up with can take your property. But the question becomes, can you hold it? You know, the question becomes, can you defend it? And uh, what are you going to do about it if I try to take it back? So it's it's all this like charade of legalese that essentially is just like what war is. I take what's yours. You come back at me and you take what's mine and we see how it all shakes out in the end. But let's talk about the idea of what is an alien enemy, Ben? Like that's another Ooh. Orwellian double think. The idea, we all live in the same country and yet now all of a sudden we're dealing with alien enemies. Right. Yeah. That That's why I just... Uh God, not even a month after the union passed the Confiscation Act, the Jefferson Davis administration running the Confederacy, they responded with the Confederate Act of Sequestration. That was August 30th, 1861. This is where we get to those alien enemies. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh boy, have I ever been. 
<laughs> well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So they wanted to strike at northern financial interest within the Confederate states. And so they appointed these Confederate agents. And it was actually very easy to be appointed. We'll see. It turns into a witch hunt. These Confederate agents would locate, quote, all and every lands, tenements, hereditaments, goods and chattels, rights and credits within those Confederate states and every right and interest therein held, owned, possessed or enjoyed by or for any alien enemy. Uh, so <laughs> first off, points to hereditaments. Yes. Good Lord. We've learned a new word today. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to start using that one. Uh, the second, uh, what a shout out, uh, New York Times. This We're getting a lot of this from a great blog, The Opinionator, Corruption in the Confederacy, Rodney Stewart, uh, written in 2013. So yeah, Noel, alien enemies. This is strange because they may well be talking about people who have grown up in the South, right? Who just didn't support the civil or didn't support the Confederacy in the Civil War. They also talked about clearly maybe people who did business, say, in Georgia, but they were, you know, their real home was in New York or something like that. And this idea was that they would, it's almost like they're nationalizing this stuff, is what we would call yes. it today, right? They take it, it all goes to the CSA. Not your local, not your local fruit and veg delivery service, but the Confederate States of America. And then they would mm -hmm. sell that off at an auction and the proceeds would go into a fund 
And then if you were a loyal Confederate, you could submit a claim to get a cut of that pie, a piece of that pie, a cut of that. Orange. So weird. Yeah. So random. Like we, I can't think of really any equivalent of that today or anything like it. Like it's, it's very odd. Like, like what, what am I entitled to in that same way? I mean, is it sort of like insurance? Like what, what, what would your claim be? Like I am a loyal Confederate, therefore give me money from this, con- or or do we have to prove damages in some way? Is it like a like a class action lawsuit? Like I don't understand. It's very unclear, and I think that's by design, honestly. And I don't think we're gonna get an answer to this. Like the idea even of what ident what it meant to be a quote true and loyal citizen couldn't be any more vague. And then like this idea of indemnity, this indemnity clause. Like, mm-hmm. what are the criteria for making such a claim? And, like, what would entitle me to more or less than my fellow, you know, true and loyal citizen? Well, let's say, just for an example, this is a good question. So, indemnity means security or protection against some kind of loss. So, if you are a true Confederate, however nebulously defined, let's say that you lost your house or your farm in an attack or occupation by Union soldiers, in theory, you could go to the CSA and say, these Yankees took my stuff. I need a place for my family. I need funds to build something new or something like that. And then again, in theory, they would pony up the cash. However, you can already see this was very, very ripe for corruption. A true Confederate might be someone who knows the person at the Treasury Department who's in charge of saying this claim is legit. And then boom, 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 one hand washes the other. People are scratching their backs left and right figuratively. And there is no criteria in any of the writing about this. There's no criteria that tells, tells the public what constitutes a true and loyal citizen. I, I think that's what we're talking about when we say corruption. And they they stole the idea of alien enemies from the north, from the federalist era. But <laughs> but they couldn't they couldn't really use those definitions because the folks the Lincoln administration considered enemies were they were true foreigners, right? They were right. like from another country. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. They were not aliens. And again, I just have to shout out all my fellow X-Files Unsolved Mystery nerds. Yes, it's a bummer that they're saying aliens, but they mean people. As much as I want there to be uh, an extraterrestrial contingent in the Civil War in the U.S., so far history proves that it's not the case. So far. You know, that's what imaginations are for, Ben. Yeah. And I think, you know, feel free every time we say aliens, just picture your little green tentacled or whatever creature of choice. But it's right. The, the Lincoln um, administration couldn't use this law to address what was happening in the Civil War because their whole kind of framework for the war and justification for the war was depended on not treating the Southerners as aliens or foreign invaders. It was to treat them as Americans. That was the whole point. It was a different kind of war. So the military prisons in the North were starting to become overcrowded with Southern-born citizens and Southern residents from some of these occupied areas, they started to refer to them more as political prisoners rather than alien enemies. Which is interesting because you notice they didn't go immediately to prisoners of war. They became political prisoners. The 
Confederacy did not have the same compunction or hesitancy about calling people from the North alien enemies because, you know, they're on the other side of this argument. To them, the entire point of the conflict is to prove the South is its own distinct and separate nation. And there was pretty much a unanimous consensus that it was legally okay to take any Union property. They said, look, the U.S. is belligerent. It's actively at war with us. And that means due to the laws of war, we can confiscate their stuff. And they even consulted international law on this. They said doing this will help us assert our sovereignty in a new way. And it will also allow us to move much more quickly than those jerks in the North, because they won't call us alien enemies, but we have no problem doing that to them. So you know, if you, it doesn't matter if you're a U.S. citizen, we're at war with the U.S. So that means that under Confederate law, you're a foreigner. And yes, we have a Confederate constitution, but you do not get the protections of that, you alien, you enemy. Yeah, no one was safe from this either. I mean, no matter how big your wig was, I mean, they were going to take your stuff, you know? The cops were going to come and try to snatch your crops, uh, and the crops that got snatched were even the ones on Monticello. Didn't he grow hemp, Thomas Jefferson? Everybody, Sorry, I made that a Cypress Hill reference there, uh, of them snatching his crops, because those pigs wanted to blow his house down. And his house was Monticello, which was in Virginia, which is a, uh, you know, it's, I think of Virginia as... Sort of that like middle ground between the North and the South, you know, it's got sort of like a hybrid sensibility, you know, it's a little more kind of a hippie kind of town. I don't really think of them as pure Southerners, but then you have to remember like back in the day, Virginia was like tobacco country. I mean, it really was still very much the South. Same way I kind of think of like Missouri, you know, like it sort of straddles the divide between the two uh, ideologies, but to the Confederates, it was 100% in their territory. So on October 11th, 1861, the Richmond Inquirer reported that a Confederate court officially ruled that Monticello was fair game to be confiscated. If you guys don't know, Monticello is, you know, it's still a place I think you can visit today, mm -hmm. but that was Thomas Jefferson's, like, you know, uh, family estate. Mm -hmm. And House of Amorous Shame, which is a story for another day, but one that is absolutely true. We're a family show, so won't go too, too into it. Yeah, yeah, you can visit Monticello today. And this takes place just a few weeks after the Confederate Congress passes that act. And at the time, of course, Thomas Jefferson is long gone. Monticello is owned by a U.S. naval captain, Uriah P. Levy of Pennsylvania. And whenever I hear Uriah, I always think of the wonderful Grinch story. Check it out. And then go check out the Grinch Halloween special, which is even weirder. Oh, yeah, I love it. Halloween is indeed Grinch night. I think that's one of my favorite Dr. Seuss things. I ever love it. I, I still don't like. What does the Grinch do that's so scary? Anyway, I'll watch it again. He's just a spooky guy. He's an agent of chaos. He's got a weird I just like the hack and sex. Yeah. Uh, the, anyhow, so also before Dr. Dr. Seuss, pronounced Dr. Seuss, if you want to be a lot of fun at parties, uh, <laughs> there were these two Virginians who were managing the estate on behalf of Captain Levy. They were Joel Wheeler and George Carr. They were out of Charlottesville. And because Levy was a U.S. citizen, the Confederates called him an alien enemy. And because they called him an alien enemy and not a true Confederate, all of his property 
within the boundaries of the Confederacy was up for grabs. They were going to take it. They were going to sell it and give the proceeds to any true Confederate citizens who had lost out something due to the war with the Union. Yeah, and I apologies if I uh, overstated the case there. This was this was Thomas Jefferson's estate, but at this point he he no longer owned it, but it was still represented that kind of northern oh yeah ideology. Oh yeah, totally. You say, uh huh, and and that's and they knew this was a spectacle, right? This was a propagandistic Correct. move as well. So the Confederate courts that have to make this law actually work. They seized the estate and it had 360 acres of land. They assessed it at $20 an acre along with a house and what they called other improvements. And they put the price there at 2,500. Then they confiscated- For the whole house? uh, Well, yeah, but this is, again, this is in the 1800s. Oh yeah, I know. It's just still bonkers to me. (laughs) And, uh, And then they also took- any other property they could find that Captain Levy owned nearby, including 960 acres of land, as well as eight horses, 16 head of cattle, 78 sheep, 30 hogs, and then, quote, a lot of household and kitchen furniture. So they took all his Ikea stuff as well. Perhaps most notably, 10 enslaved people. Again, the Confederacy considered them property, so they took possession of these people. Ben, I think I understand my my confusion here. There are two separate figures. So the house was that twenty five hundred dollars. That's just for the house and the stuff inside of it. And the rest of it was the the lot uh, and the the land, which was twenty bucks an acre, um, which was like what around three hundred and sixty acres. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So that would make the land itself about seven thousand two hundred dollars. Ben, just so we can all get on the same page mentally, because it is weird money and numbers. Let, let, let's pop this in the old handy dandy inflation calculator. Carry the one. Divide by three. Guys, I want to do some jokes too, but I'm actually doing the math. Math is the greatest joke of all. All right. I had to hang out for a second, actually, actually do the calculation. So this gets us to a grand total of just under ten thousand dollars. Ben, you're you're spoiling the illusion. We have a we have a thing. We have I was allowed to participate in the thing. I had to do the computer. I had to do the math. So it's eighteen <laughs> There's no gatekeeping. Eighteen seventy one, nine thousand seven hundred dollars. That's the equivalent of two hundred and twenty eight thousand five hundred and eighty nine dollars and twenty five cents. Which is a lot of money, but you know, also it, it might sound it's it's, modest, it sounds though, weird, doesn't it? Because uh, maybe it's the housing prices exploding in the U.S. today, but that there are a lot of people who say that's not a bad deal for all that land and a house. But here's the thing: it wasn't like this was actually benefiting the little guys, the little Confederate peoples. You know, this was all mainly designed based on the size of your wig, you know, like how, how much you were going to benefit from these seizures, uh, how much you were going to be able to bilk that quote unquote public fund. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they ran into a lot of corruption. Like we said, they also, they ran into some unexpected difficulties figuring out what was Northern owned property and where it was located because the Confederates, the authorities, at least, had to rely on volunteered information in many cases. So ordinary Confederate citizens, true or otherwise, uh, if if they thought that somebody was withholding information and not playing ball or not playing the fife, as it were, at this time. 
then those Confederate officials had these enormous legal powers to search out and find property to confiscate. This is where it becomes a witch hunt. There were two newly created parts of the Confederate DOJ, Department of Justice, called receivers and federal grand juries. So receivers are like our inquisitors here. They go out and they they chase down rumors. I'm doing my arms like this because it's like you're riding a horse yeah. or whatever. Yeah, they <laughs> clop, 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 clop. They uh, go out and they chase down these wisp of speculation and they say, okay, we're going to find stuff that might belong to a northerner. On the other side, kind of like law and order has the cops and then the uh, and then the courts, doom, doom, the federal grand juries interrogate people whose loyalty is suspect. And the problem with that is anybody's loyalty could be considered suspect. So there's no real oversight. There's nobody really stopping them. This is to the point where like, if you were influential in a federal grand jury and you were going to pursue the affections of maybe say someone you wanted to marry, but she preferred some other guy to you, then you could literally go to your buddies on the court and say, you know who is uh, probably not a true Confederate? This guy who keeps hitting on Amelia. And they would be like, mm, sounds legit. And hey, you know, maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe that wasn't the case. We'll never know because they left like no paperwork. This was a no paper trail situation. Yeah, we sort of alluded to that from the start, the idea that that's where corruption can run the most rampant is when there's no oversight or at the very least no accountability where you can't really tell where the money's going, where it came from. The idea of, you mentioned witch hunt, Ben, because that's what it becomes when it's just word of mouth. I could say, hey, Ben's a union loyalist, you know, and uh, he owns this tool shed over there in the next neighborhood. Uh, you better go grab it. They're probably just going to grab it. <laughs> it's a war anyway. They're trying to justify it with some sort of vague claim of like ownership or some vague claim of like justice, you know, and like, oh, we, we have to do this in order to, to protect our people. But it's really all just about it's a cash grab and it's a way to enrich the already rich. And then what are you going to like? You're going to dispute it? Where, where are you going to fill out this document and this, this comment card? And say, actually, you, you totally confiscated my property unlawfully because it's all unlawful. It's all about which side is saying that it's lawful. It's lawful based on our rules. It's completely unlawful based on your rules. It's like the whole freedom fighter versus terrorist argument. Mm -hmm. Or the way Dave and Busters can say that uh, a Dave and Busters card counts as currency in their store, but not anywhere else. Uh, That's right. I've tried it. Don't do it. <laughs> so, and the exchange rate is vague because like, you know, the Dave and Busters, it's not like a game costs like 25 cents and you know what that amounts to on the card. It's some fraction of a credit that is always changing and in flux, sort of like buying airline tickets with like Sky Miles. Mm -hmm. It's all up to them to decide what the exchange rate is and you never really can bank on it or know or depend on what it's going to be from day to day. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh boy, have I ever been. <laughs> well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? 
here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avala Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. And this obfuscation worked really well for uh, for airlines and Dave and Buster's and for the Confederate government. So the I, the bureaucracy here was super complex. We know that, but the receivers don't usually leave a record of how they got involved with seizing property. These grand juries, they had secret identities, so they were not accountable to the public. Any interrogations they had where they kept minutes or notes, those written notes were destroyed after each and every session. There were no detailed records of all the property that had been taken, and there was no real visibility into how much each property sold for at auction. Receivers only talked about the properties that were sold. So this all existed under a very corrupt umbrella of enigma and shadowy dealings. It was kind of like the PPE loan controversy, right? Who gets the money? Uh, we can't tell you. So again, we know that there may have also been conflicting definitions of loyal Confederate and alien enemy, depending on which official you asked. How messed up is that? Like, well, this family's been here for four generations. They're true Confederates. They're older than the Confederacy. Or, yeah, I know this guy is in the Confederate Army now, but I don't think he's a true Confederate because I don't like the way he says you all. Or something like that. No. It could be that arbitrary. Doesn't quite sit right with me. No, no, it doesn't. So these judges, for example, could absolutely rule with an iron fist as their word was was binding, at least, you know, in at the time under these circumstances. And there were 
Confederate judges. Asa Biggs, for example, was the judge of the North Carolina Confederate District Court. He appointed every single officer in his court in North Carolina personally. And that included the virulently secessionist David Shank, who will become a very interesting case study in the depths of, uh, of corruption that this whole arrangement created. So the classification of the Union as this, these foreign alien enemies was very, very, very important and had a lot of far-reaching kind of implications. So while the North had similar apparatus that, that, that would assess individuals' loyalties and, and, and do chain of custody on property in order to confiscate, the South had no such apparatus. So they could essentially confiscate a property without ever having the individual have their day in court, you know, literally. So they had a very, very aggressive system of confiscation, and they did it pretty much willy-nilly. By 1865, the Confederacy had seized and sold millions of dollars worth of property, worth of Northern property that was located all over the South. And let's remember our, our, our handy-dandy inflation calculator segment where Monticello was basically valued in the $250,000 $300,000 range. We're talking, and that was, you know, a, a really pretty nice place. We're talking millions oh, yeah. of dollars in 1860s yeah. money. So this is an absolute feeding frenzy. Mm -hmm. And this is where, this is where David Shank becomes, uh, unfortunately, an excellent example for our purposes. Because earlier I had said, you know, pretty much all the receivers, with very few exceptions, didn't leave a written record of their activities. Shank is a little bit different because he did write things down. He didn't have the most prestigious beginnings. Uh, he was a middle-class lawyer, by no means a wealthy guy. He was struggling. And he got put out of work because of something called the Stay Act in North Carolina. This decimated or reduced by a factor of 10 the number of cases and the types of cases that could go to the court. He did have a small farm on the outskirts of Lincolnton. He owned no slaves. He started working as a receiver in the Western Piedmont. And just and this was in September 1862. In just a few days after he started, he began bragging to himself in his diary. He said, I've already sold $20,000 worth of sequestered real estate. And that was bigger than the value of all the taxable property in two local counties combined. Uh, we know that other receivers like C.N. White sold 354 acres of cotton land for $5 an acre at an auction and then if we use C.N. White's numbers as a reference, we know that Shank would have sold 4,000 acres of land around the same time period. And then he started buying enslaved people. And then he started buying land to build a new house. And at the end of just one year, he estimated his earnings to be $9,000. So whatever their ideology may have actually been, these receivers were making money hand over fist. And there was like, it was just so corrupt. It was so corrupt. Individual rights went out the window. Well, let's also think about like, I mean, again, back to the inflation, you know, if you're amassing this level of wealth by 
taking it from others, you know, in theory, you're amassing what will become generational wealth that will be passed down to, you know, future members of your family and that will appreciate and become like, you know, the makings of an empire. That's what this guy Shank was doing, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah. And let's look at how dirty the money gets here as well. So <laughs> I'm laughing because oh, he was paid in Confederate currency is the issue. And Confederate currency mm -hmm. was depreciating pretty rapidly, like on a daily basis. But we know it, it reminds me of that pallet of U.S. dollars. There was like a billion dollars that just disappeared during either the Gulf War, or the war in Afghanistan, because, right. yeah, because there's no oversight. We have to kind of guess at the gaps and read between the financial lines. So his district only sent $3,610.24 to the Confederate Treasury in 1862. Official records say he was paid just under $320 to cover his expenses while he was working as a receiver. So like, you know, his per diem, basically. There is no evidence that all the money from confiscated property sold at auction ever made it to this sequestration fund. So what seems to be the case, and not to, not to cast unfair aspersion, but what seems to be the case is that these guys saw the opportunity in the chaos and they just started seizing stuff, selling it, maybe putting a little bit into the community kitty, but then keeping the rest for themselves. As a matter of fact, that's almost certainly what happened, at least in, in this guy's case. Which leads to another question. Noel, who was buying all this stuff? Who Who is like sitting there saying, well, I know there's a war on, but I always kind of liked Monticello. Yeah, let's get a deal. You know, why not? So in Wilmington, you had a guy named DeBrutz Cutler. <laughs> great, great name. He was seizing real estate that belonged to J.B. Allen when one of their neighbors, a guy named William Gordon, accused Allen of being disloyal. There's the where's of the witch hunt kicks into full swing. Um, when Cutler auctioned the property of Allen, uh, it was then bought by William Gordon. So in uh, Union County, a receiver by the name of C.N. White sold mineral rights, which we know is a thing. It's basically like life rights for a story, but it's the right to drill, you know, on a piece of property, the rights, you know, for a certain period of time on 288 acres of land to a fellow named Robert Hall Morrison, who was the father-in-law of the generals uh, Daniel Harvey Hill and Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. You might've heard of him. Morrison had acquired this land bordering land that he had purchased from White. Um, so Shank came out of the Civil War owning six lots in Lincolnton and uh, lots of other smaller parcels nearby. Um, what happened to the officers of the North Carolina District Court, you might be asking yourself? Well, DeBrutz Cutler, um, oh, such a great name, and Asa Biggs uh, were lawyers in Tarboro and Wilmington. And David Shank was a lawyer in Lincolnton uh, after the war. And he would go on to become a superior court judge for the Ninth Judicial District and also uh, the leader of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In, uh, in Western North Carolina. 
So back to what I said, I mean, he he had amassed what would amount to a lifelong legacy of property and wealth that is clearly wrapped up in pretty awful racism and uh, just terribleness all around. Yeah, that's what I've been saying the whole time. It's It doesn't matter uh, how people felt about the philosophical differences or ideological differences between the North and the South at that time, it was inescapably, inarguably corrupt. And it was also due to the um, the statements of later revisionists, it was also clearly a hypocritical endeavor. Individual rights were not being respected in any shape, form, or fashion here, except when it was convenient to do so, which makes it officially, I posit, ridiculous history. And there's much more we could go into in this regard. But I think this is where we wrap the story up for today. It is also, to be fair, it is also very common in any conflict for a lot of corruption to occur, for a lot of stuff to go missing, just like the pallet of money I mentioned earlier. That's a true story from modern history. Or just like, you know, munitions, property, Anything can be up for grabs. But luckily, we've got one thing that's not up for grabs, which is you, our fantastic, ridiculous historians. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Thanks also to our super producer, the one and only Mr. Max Williams, who just kissed the sky. <laughs> that was a good He move. just kissed. Cool. He, he, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Also, huge thanks. Chris Frasiotis is here in spirit. He's Jeff Coates, Jonathan Strickland, the quizster. He, he uh, may ever, ever may he reign in, in quiz, quizendom. And thanks to you, Ben. This was a weird one, fun one, but I think important one. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, Max, do you want to want to play us out with uh, some, some more of that ter- purposely terrible music? See you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! 
Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.